bit more set up in context, and then we got the basic idea. So this is based on uh, a true story, true events, again, based on. So that means, of course, there's some different things that happen in the movie that probably didn't happen in real life, but again, based on true events, and this uh, really one of the greatest spiritual awakenings uh, uh, in the history of our country, um, again, that actually happened. And so uh, this movie really follows two different experiences. Uh, and there are four primary characters, and you see all four uh, in this movie. And so two characters really uh, represent the experience that I'll call uh, the truth seeker experience, right? So Greg and Kathy, they're the younger uh, teenage-looking uh, characters, right? So Greg and Kathleen, and, and the truth they're seeking, well, they don't really know what it is, but they're seeking something. And so there's these multiple dialogues. Uh, and the movie really starts out very early uh, where Greg, he goes and he meets Kathy for the first time when she calls him a square. And, and Kathy quotes the philosopher Allen Ginsberg, and she says this, I don't think there is truth. There are only points of view. Now, Greg hears that, and that's interesting to him. And he says, I don't know. I haven't found them yet. But at least now we're asking the right questions. He says, well, I, I might disagree with Ginsburg on that. I actually think there is truth, but I just don't know what it is yet. So he says, you know what, I, I'm not sure what truth is, but hey, at least now we're asking the right questions. And so in, in response to this statement from Greg, Kathy, she's pretty intrigued. And so she says, hey, let's invite Greg to this thing that's happening this weekend. It's called a happening. And at this time, that's the, where, it, where I had the year show up, 1969, it's this um, concert uh, with Janis Joplin uh, and this uh, other guy um, who was named Timothy Leary, and they very much uh, encapsulate the ideologies and, and the truth that's being promoted by the hippie movement, right? And so this is, this is the message that they are given as Greg and Kathy, again, the truth seeker experience, saying, what is true? This is the message that Timothy Leary, again, one of the leaders of the hippie movement, uh, in, in real life as well, uh, says, he says, the psychedelic experience is a confrontation with the divine. It is a spiritual awakening. You come back and you define God the best you can. Turn on, tune in, drop out, start a new sequence of behavior that matches your vision. Be reborn. And so this sounds very good to Greg and Kathy, and they indulge and they participate in the truth that is being presented to them desperately chasing after truth, whatever that means. And at this point in history, that's the experience that was saying, hey, this will bring satisfaction to your soul. That's their initial quest for truth. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, we have two more characters that really represent the second experience of this movie. Again, experience one is the truth seeker. Experience two, embodied and represented by Chuck Smith, the pastor uh, that you saw, and a guy named Lonnie Frisbee, which is the greatest hippie name of all time and was an, actually a person who lived. To be clear, Lonnie had his issues, uh, but God used Lonnie in a really powerful way. Their experience is the experience of the truth teller. And so here's the tension then that we are introduced to. Chuck, who is, again, the pastor of a dying church, uh, he asks, he's like, look, I'll, if I ever meet a hippie, I'll ask him. And then um, Chuck's daughter runs across Lonnie, who is the epitome of a hippie, invites him into her home, and Chuck asks, okay, what is all of this about? What is this hippie movement, these people that I think just need a bath and who are rebelling against old-fashioned authority, as the preview said, what is this all about? And Lonnie says this, speaking to Chuck, he says, the drugs, it's a quest. And Chuck asks, for what? And Lonnie says, for God. 
There is an entire generation right now searching for God. We thought acid was going to save the world, but it was a lie. I kept searching and searching, and I got to the end of it, and there was still a void. Reminds me of the series we did in Ecclesiastes this summer, where Solomon searches and searches and pursues things of the world to the nthmost degree, and he still finds vanity that is meaningless, that is vapor. It looks like it's promising, but when you grab a hold of it, you just find air. And so Lonnie pursued the truth being promoted in the hippie movement to the utmost extreme, and he found there was a void. He goes on, my people, speaking of hippies, they are a desperate bunch. And desperation, there is power in that word. A bunch of kids searching for all the right things just in all the wrong places. Again, that's the experience of Kathy and Greg, searching for all the right things, meaning, truth, significance, life, searching for all the right things just in all the wrong places. Lonnie continues, how do I describe my people? They're like sheep without a shepherd, chasing hard after lies. The problem is your people reject them, Lonnie speaking to Chuck, the pastor. So I ask you, pastor, how can they believe in whom they have not heard? How uh, we can only walk into doors open to us in your church, that's a door that's shut. And so again, two experiences, the truth seeker experience, what happens and unfolds over the course of the movie is Greg and Kathy, they have to begin to see how Jesus is the truth, a truth that they can build their lives upon. And they have these tensions that they have to wrestle through because people are broken and flawed. Leaders are broken and flawed, myself included. And so they have to see, wait, Jesus is bigger than the flaws of mankind. Jesus is, is true even when people misrepresent him. Jesus is worth building my life around. And it's this constant struggle to say, if I fully commit to Jesus, am I going to be let down? And what they ultimately find is, no, Jesus is worth it. Greg Laurie is still a pastor today. God has used him in incredible ways. He and his wife, Kathy, they're now married. And on, again, on the other end of the spectrum, what we have in the truth teller experience is this tension between seeing people as God sees them, seeing people chasing hard after something, seeking meaning, seeking significance, and seeing those people not, not as enemies, not as people to be hated, not as people to be judged, but seeing them for what really is, a people who have been misguided and led astray by the enemy. And so then it's this tension of, okay, well, how do we go about then reaching these people, sharing the love of Christ, teaching the gospel that is faith and repentance, repentance and faith, how do we go about doing this? That's what the rest of the story unfolds. Again, it's a really, really good movie. I would highly recommend it. And so what I want to do this morning, we're not just talking about movies, but we're saying, okay, well, how does this impact us? How does this relate to our lives? And so what we're going to do, I think the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17 gives us a really, really good model for how we see people who are broken, see people who are away from Jesus, how do we lovingly, with the truth, point them to Jesus so that they understand who Jesus is and so that they begin chasing hard and desperation after the truth, which is found only in Christ. That's what we're doing today, all right? We're going to use Acts chapter 17 as a model. And so if you have your Bible, you can open up there. We're going to start in verse 14 just to give ourselves a little bit of context to understand where in the world we're parachuting in. Uh, as usual, I do want to pray for us because I always need help, uh, and I think the Holy Spirit can, can really do that. So let's pray and ask the Lord for help. Father, um, we do, we ask that this morning. You promise, as I often say, that your word is living and active, and so God, we do ask that you would make it living and active to us today. And what we ask in that is that you would shape us, 
You'd transform us. You'd help us to see the world through the lens by which you have created for us. To say, hey, I want, to, I want you to see people how I see them. Sheep without a shepherd. We need you, Lord. We love you. Glorify yourself in our midst. Get me out of the way so I can communicate again your word clearly and effectively. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Acts uh, 17, uh, we're going to drop in, in in the middle of one of Paul, the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys. The Apostle Paul was commissioned individually by Jesus to go and share the gospel with who we refer to as Gentiles. If you're not familiar with that term, Gentiles are anybody who is not eth- ethnically Jewish. Okay? And so Paul's mission is to say, hey, uh, the gospel is for all people, Jew, Greek, whatever. It's for all people, every tribe, every color, every tongue, whatever. It is for all people. And so the Apostle Paul is on this mission. And so where we're going uh, to jump in, we we see the Apostle Paul getting himself into some trouble as a result of the gospel. Uh, He's in a place called Thessalonica. We might uh, recognize that name. It's who the Apostle Paul writes the letters 1 and 2 Thessalonians to. And so while he's there, he's sharing the gospel, and again, he runs into some trouble. Verse 14 says this. After, excuse me, a little bit more context, he shares the gospel, and people are really angry about it. They stir up an angry mob, and they, they, they want to hurt Paul. That's their goal. But there are other believers who are trying to protect Paul in the city, and it says this. Then the brothers, believers, immediately sent Paul off on his way to, to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. All right, so again, there's, there's trouble. He goes from Thessalonica. He actually goes to Berea as well. Then more trouble happens upon him. And so these believers say, Paul, we got to get you out of here. So they put him on a boat, and they ship him off to Athens, Greece. Okay? But while the Apostle Paul is there, he wants his companions with him. All right? He's not a lone wolf, lone ranger character. Paul wants Silas and Timothy with him. And so... He instructs, hey, send me Silas, send me Timothy. They're useful to me in the ministry. And though, while he's in Athens, though, he has to wait. Right? So he's sort of in this holding pattern and this waiting pattern. That's where we pick up in verse 16. It says this, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so the Apostle Paul does what anybody would do in Athens. You go sightseeing. You can go sightseeing today and see the very same things the Apostle Paul saw today. And so what are some of the things that the Apostle Paul sees? Well, uh, the first picture I want to put up here for us, uh, this this place here, uh, this is called the Acropolis. And so it's a giant sort of mound of rocks with a flat plateau on top. And again, you can see these things today. These are the very same things that the Apostle Paul would have seen. And atop the Acropolis, this hill, are several different monuments uh, or temples that would have facilitated the worship of false gods. One such uh, temple uh, is called the Parthenon. We might recognize this one, a very, very familiar picture. Again, this, people would have gone here to worship false gods, false deities. Uh, another temple atop uh, the Acropolis is called the Erechtheon, and I'm just going to say it because you know how I, how I do that. I just Erechtheon, that's how we're going to pronounce it. Uh, that's another temple, right, to facilitate uh, worship of false gods. Then you have the temple of Nike. I know how to say that one. Uh, that's also atop the Acropolis. And then uh, away from the Acropolis a little bit is a temple dedicated to Zeus, all right, that temple. And again, these are just four temples 
that Paul would have seen in his day. Uh, there is an ancient historian uh, named Petronius, and Petronius says he would have been a, uh, a contemporary of the Apostle Paul, actually. He says that it was easier to encounter a god in Athens than it was a man. And what he meant by that was at that time there were estimated to be uh, 30,000 false gods worshipped in Athens, Greece. That's just crazy. The population of Athens at this time, it had actually declined a little bit in prominence and in, in authority. Um, it was about 20,000 people. And their entire world was focused on worshiping, appeasing these false gods in these many, many false temples. And so Paul sees these things. He sees them, and do you remember what the text said? It says his spirit was provoked within him. And that word provoked, I started digging into that. I was like, well, what does that mean? Well, provoked is the, the Greek word paroxuno, and it means to irritate and arouse anger. And so he's walking around, and he is provoked in his spirit. He has this anger almost fired up inside him. And what is he angry about? What is he angry about? He's angry, it says here, that the city was full of idols. The Apostle Paul is, is angry that these people are worshiping in this way. And so what does he do? Verse 17, he says this. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So what is Paul's response to the anger, the provocation of his spirit, if you will? He reasons with people. And what does that then teach us? Who is Paul angry at? What is Paul angry at? Well, here's the thing. I don't think you go to the trouble of reasoning with people, desiring to share the truth with people, if you hate the people. Right? He's not angry with the people. The Apostle Paul's anger is not toward the people, but toward the existence of demonic idolatry that leads people into spiritual death. He's looking around at this place, and what he sees is a people who have an incredible capacity for worship. A people whose entire civilization is based upon the creation of false gods and then the worship of these false gods. He sees this capacity from them to say, I want to worship, I desire to worship, worship is the aim and the goal of my life, and what he sees is that they're worshiping things, they're chasing hard, as Lonnie Frisbee would say, they're chasing hard after lies. They're in desperate search of truth, but the truth that they're seeking is leading them into death. And that grieves the Apostle Paul's spirit to such a point that he says, no, I'm going to do something about this. And so he goes to the synagogues first, and he begins to teach. He teach, teaches Greeks, and he teaches Jews, God-fearing Greeks, people who would have said, I, no, I know who God is. He starts there but he certainly does not end there. Again, he has a love for the people, not a hatred or a condemnation of the people. He has an empathy for them to say, you are walking in spiritual death. I want to do everything I can to help you see the way, the truth that is Jesus. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. All right? And so there's the other people here who are listening to Paul, and, and, and they're, they're hearing him, and again, they're, they, they're identified, Stoics and Epicureans, right? and they hear what the Apostle Paul is teaching, and they're, they're interested to learn a little bit more. And so in verse 19 it says this, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. 
For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so these philosophers, they see Paul in the marketplace or in the synagogue, and they say, hey, what you're saying is really fascinating to us. We want to take you to where the, the real conversations happen. And so they take Paul to another pile of rocks. We call this Mars Hill. Again, you can still visit this today. I don't have a picture of it for you today. I apologize for that. Um, they take him to this place where people would have gathered to learn about new ideas, where philosophers would have shared their philosophies, and this was the place where ideas were debated. Okay? They take him there. They're interested in what it is he has to say. And so now, the Apostle Paul really has the audience that he's been wanting. He really has the audience that say, no, these are the people that I'm grieving for. These are the people that I want to share the gospel with. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read all 10 verses of the sermon, in a sense, that the Apostle Paul gives. We're going to read all 10 verses, and then we're sort of going to work our way back through. And I wish I could be as effective as Paul is in about three minutes, but I'm just, I'm just not. So I have to talk much more than 10 verses of content. Anyway, so he says this in verse 22. Again, we're going to read 22 to 32 just straight. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the object of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Pause for a second. I know I said I was going to read straight through. So again, he walks around. He sees all these temples. He sees all these things. But he sees this one inscription. These people are worshiping something called an unknown God. And Apostle Paul sees this and he's like, well, that's fascinating. They have a knowledge and a perception that there is a God out there, but they don't know who he is. And now he says, let me teach you about this unknown God. He says this, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. This is who the unknown God is. I'm going to tell you who he is. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the, by the art and imagination of man. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, whom he has appointed. And of this he has forgive, uh, given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And so here, the Apostle Paul gives again this sermon, and the sermon really has four parts. All right? We're going to identify these four parts, then we're going to go through these four parts. The person of God, our position in relation to God, the plan of God, and our response to God. Again, imagine the audience. Very intelligent people. Epicureans and Stoics and many other types of philosophies being represented. 
And he says, no, I want to teach you about who this God is. So number one, the person of God. In verse 24, the Apostle Paul says this, again, answering who is God. He says, God made all things and is Lord of all things. Who is God? God made all things and is Lord of all things. Verse 25, God is the one who has given all things life. And I'm sort of summarizing these, these verses, just to be clear. Verse 26, God has authority over every nation. God is not made in our image. We are made in God's image, verse 29. And he also there says that God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. So who is God? He's the creator. Hebrews 1, verse 3, speaks of Jesus upholding the universe by the power of his word. Think about that. The trillions of molecular atoms and, and all of these different things, Jesus holds them together. I was speaking at a funeral on um, Friday of this week. And anytime I'm, I'm in that position, I, I want to say, I want to ask some of the questions that I think people ask about why, why do bad things happen and, and getting into these things. Like, why do people have to suffer? And, and in this, I found myself pointing to the power of God. So we asked, is, is, if, if people suffer, then, then we ask, well, if there is a God, he must not be that powerful. Because if he was, then people wouldn't suffer. And what I would say is when we, again, look at creation, think about this right now. We're sitting quite peacefully in this room, aren't we? Right now, we are hurtling through space at like, I don't know, thousands of miles an hour around a giant ball of fire. And here we sit, peaceful, munching our popcorn, content as can be. That alone speaks to the incredible power of God, right? It's just stunning. He says, no, God is powerful. And then he points them. He says, God is, has authority over every nation. He's the one who gave you life, people. He's the one who's done everything for you. And what the Apostle Paul is essentially doing here, he's saying, God is Lord of all things. And I think in our Western culture, we often miss the significance of the word Lord. Lord is this concept of lordship, this power, this authority, this control over all things. And if God is Lord of all things, what that must mean is that you and I, we need to be Lord of no things. And if he is Lord of all things and all people and all creation, then who am I to say to God, no, I'd rather have control of this, not you, God. Thanks anyway. And now I want you to imagine, remember his audience, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans, they come from a philosopher named uh, Epicurus, uh, which is fitting. And this philosopher lived about 400 years prior to the time of Paul. And the, the, this philosopher really promoted the idea that, hey, look, if these gods exist at all, they are very much distant gods and not very involved in the affairs of mankind. These gods don't really care. Maybe you can appease them with different sacrifices and things, but really these are very hands-off gods. Hearing this would have just smacked them right in the face to say that God is in control of the rise and fall of nations, that God is the one who gives you life. They would have been taken aback by a very hands-on, very personal God. And of course, Jesus is the ultimate example of a very hands-on and personal God, is he not? God in the flesh, walking with us. Emmanuel, God with us. It would have challenged the Epicureans immensely. So who is God? God is Lord of all things. Then he goes on. Our position in relation to God. God is not dependent upon us. I'm getting this in verses 24b and 25a. God is not dependent upon us. We are dependent upon God. 
Our existence is dependent upon God, verse 28. We are the offspring of God, verse 29. Again, he's saying, who is this unknown God? This is our relationship to who this God is. And this very much would have flown right in the face of the Stoics. Remember, two primary audience, Epicureans and Stoics. The Stoics very much believed in the power and the authority of reason to govern our lives. Actually, in our day and age, this is a pretty familiar thing. We reason our way into our decisions more than we listen to the authority of God to dictate to us what our decisions should be. We say, you know what, that one ah, it doesn't really make sense to me to make that decision, God, so I'm not going to. And God says, no, I've actually commanded you to make this decision. You're not in control, remember I am. But the idea, the Stoics again preaching this very much, look, just be sort of rational, make decisions that are logical and that make sense. Sure, you can appease these gods, but be reasonable, people. Don't be crazy about these gods. They're not all that powerful. The Apostle Paul says, no. No, no, no. Our position to God, we are the offspring of God. Our existence is dependent upon God. God is not dependent upon us. We don't have to make him temples. He doesn't need it. He's God, and you are not. Again, very much flies in the face of these ideologies being taught. Now, what about our response to God, right? Excuse me, the plan of God. Skipped one. The plan of God. Let me, let me read verse 31 for us. What is the plan of God? God, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. All right, what is the plan of God? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And I was reading this and I felt this really interesting. This is the first time these people have heard about this unknown God and what his true identity is. And what the Apostle Paul does not do immediately, we don't know for sure, he doesn't say he loves you. We know that he does. He created us. He does not say God wants you to be happy. He doesn't say that. He does not say that God has a, a wonderfully blissful cupcakes and rainbows plan for your life. He doesn't say that. He says God, God is going to judge the world in righteousness. And I think in our modern day and age, that just sort of like, wait a minute, judgment? That's what you're going to start with, Paul? Really? You want to go first to judgment? Why? Well, again, these people were very knowledgeable about these different deities. They were a very spiritual people. You and I, we are increasingly jaded against the reality of the supernatural world. Again, we'd rather reason our way out of things. But he says, no, let me, let me first identify who this God is and his power. Let me identify our relationship to him, that we are not lords of our life. He is the Lord of our life. And then what I want you to understand is that, that he is going to judge the world in righteousness by a man. What does he mean by that? The righteousness from which and the standard of righteousness that God is going to judge the world is the standard of Jesus. Here's the thing. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless, blameless life. And when we die and when we face God or if God decides to come back before we die, the standard of righteousness set for us is Jesus. And the reality is every single one of us, myself of course included, has fallen short of the standard of Jesus. And so what the Apostle Paul does is he gets to this point of crisis. This God, who you know is the unknown God, he's going to judge and that creates in us a response. How do I avoid this judgment? 
The gospel isn't good news until we understand the promise of coming judgment. And I know that's hard and we don't like hearing that. But if I don't understand that God is going to judge the world, why do I care about the good news that is the gospel that says through faith in Jesus, I can stand before God, sinful, broken, flawed as I am, and what God sees is the perfect, sinless, flawless life of Jesus on me, on you. Through faith in Christ, you stand in the presence of God and you say, here I am, Father. And he says, my son, my daughter. And you're like, I'm a screw up. And he says, but Jesus did it for you. And you say, hallelujah, amen. Right? The gospel isn't good news until we're convinced that judgment is a reality. And the Apostle Paul starts there. Therefore, then, what is our response to God? Verse 30. What is our response to God? He says it in verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repentance is foundational and fundamental. Repentance is an understanding, again, that we have sinned, we've, got, we've done wrong. Repentance is not saying, God, yeah, sorry about that. Repentance is saying, I am convicted, I, I am convinced that, that I'm guilty. And it's a, God, I'm guilty of this. Jesus, thank you for forgiving me and giving you, me your righteousness. I'm going to commit to no longer doing this thing. Repentance is turning in the other direction from our sin. Repentance is not lip service. Repentance is life transformation. How does repentance happen? In our own strength, we can't do it. But the phenomenal, beautiful thing about the gospel is God sends his Holy Spirit to work inside of us. And so as we're repenting and as we're turning away from the, the things that Jesus deemed serious enough to die for, what we're saying is, Holy Spirit, transform me, shape me, move me away from those things that you, again, deem serious enough to die for. The person of God, all-powerful. Our response in relation to, relationship to God, if God is Lord of all things, we need to be Lord of none, no things. The plan of God, he is going to judge the world in righteousness. But the plan of God is to save us through Christ Jesus. And our response has to be repentance. And therefore, in this is an implied faith in Christ. Because only through Christ can we find freedom. Now, what does all of this have to do with the Jesus Revolution movie and how you and I, I always think when we engage with the word of God, we should walk away changed a little bit. We should walk into our day, like how does our day change tomorrow because of what we studied today? You know, we, we should be thinking about that. We, we should be a people shaped and transformed. That's why I have that prayer at the beginning, like, shape us, God. Here's, here's the thing. There are people all around us searching for all the, the right things in all the wrong places. Just like Chuck Smith, there are people, the hippies, they were searching for all the right things just in all the wrong places. When I look out into our city, what I see is, I see a lot of young people really hurting. Kids, teenagers. I see violence. I see rebellion. And it, it hurts because what I see is a, is a group of people desperate for, a, I don't, is it attention? Is it, is it being loved and seen and cared for? But I see a group of people just, the, the crime in our city from our, our younger generation is, is really concerning. I see as I look around our city, we have a reputation, let's just be honest, for a lot of drugs in our city. Every community has drugs. I want to be clear. I think sometimes Marion gets a bad rap about this. And yet, I think at times it's justified. 
The drug issue in our city is oftentimes visible. What I see in the drug issue is a people desperate for internal peace. How can I find peace? How can I get over the trauma of my life? How can I find satisfaction? How can I, how can I come to grips with the reality of my life? And the promise that the world has given through the influence of Satan, of course, is that take this thing, numb all of the pain, forget about everything, and just keep doing it until you're just nothing. And it gets a grip on people, and there's addiction, and they can't get away from it, even though they know how horrible and how much it just eats them and consumes them and destroys them. When you're walking at Walmart or wherever it may be, what is the attitude of your heart? I think sometimes I have been like Chuck Smith. I look at people in broken, difficult situations, and my first response is not, my heart breaks for you, but it's a judgment against you. And that is wrong, and I repent of that. Because only by the grace of God am I not in the same position. If you have a disdain for a certain people group, it's unlikely God is going to use you in the process of saving that people group. Right again, Chuck Smith, like he, he had a disdain for the hippies. And yet when his disdain turned to compassion and an understanding that, look, these people, they're just being led astray. They're sheep without a shepherd. They're chasing hard after truth. Again, the same is true in our community. And so I ask you, can we, do we see people with compassion to say, you know what, God, help me love this person enough to invest in them and to ask Jesus to save them and transform their lives? Here's the last point. These last couple points have been very wordy and not very memorable, but it is what it is. God's desire is to save the world through Jesus, and God is going to judge those who do not belong to Jesus. And we just have to let that reality sit on us a little bit. Because I think when we understand that God is going to judge the world in righteousness, and the standard of righteousness is Jesus, suddenly we see the world all around us and we say, it's not going to be good. And yet, what the New Testament shows us over and over and over and over again is that when a people humble themselves and say, God, use us, like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, when he encounters the glory and the power of God, he says, here I am, Lord, send me. And so I ask you, will you be willing to be sent out into our community, out into the world? If God is calling you to a different place, a different country, maybe you don't want to go. But would God work an empathy in your heart to say, no, they need the gospel. They need to be saved from the judgment that is coming through faith in Christ. God will use us. I don't know why. It seems like a bad plan, frankly. We're sort of screwed up. But that's his plan. He wants to transform you, and he wants to use you for his glory and for the saving of people's souls. Will we say yes? Let's respond this morning in prayer and in repentance. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the time in your word and that it challenges us so much and uh, that it is living and it is active. And so God, for those of us here this morning who feel like, you know what, I've had a very judgmental heart against people. I've had a disdain for people. I am so thankful, God, that you, when we are in Christ, the, uh, there's therefore now no condemnation. And so we are forgiven and we are able to come to you and say, God, shift my heart toward these people. Help me see that I am no better. I didn't save me, God. You saved me. I was a, a rebel chasing after my own way, but Jesus, you saved me. And so would we be a repentant people in that way? 
And God, I ask that you would use this church, this body of believers here in Marion, to make an impact for your kingdom. That no longer would Marion have a reputation of drugs or violence, but our reputation would be a bunch of broken people who've been transformed. That your glory would shine like a beacon into the world to say, God, look, look what you did here. And that a movement of, of people surrendering their lives to you finding freedom from addiction, finding freedom from the desire for violence, finding freedom from all of these lies that we chase after. God, would you do it for your glory, for our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.